0: you. For joining us, you're listening to the FemSouth South podcast, and I'm your host, Lee. This episode is about the topic of financial feminism. And hopefully, if all goes well, this will be the first part of a two part series. This is not a podcast about financial literacy 101. So, if you're expecting to learn about debt management, investment, saving for retirement, or planning for a house, then this is not the podcast. Plenty of books are out there that provide this information written by and for women. In fact, our book club read Clever Girl Finance by Bola Sukumbi, And there's other books out there, even with the phrase financial feminism in the title. So there's plenty of information that I do recommend that you go and seek if that's where you're at in your journey with finances. Um, I did not want to rehash that same information. I also don't think that I could possibly cover all that same information in just a few episodes. In fact, because there is so much entry level information out there, I wanted to dig a little deeper. I want to look critically at financial feminism, its concerns, its demands. I mean, what does it even mean to look at finances through a feminist lens? How can we be more intersectional? How do companies actually track impact investment? I wanted to look critically at whether or not these marketing campaigns and slogans uh, being touted by big companies and influencers that are capitalizing on the women's movement can actually deliver what they promise. Or is it just clever marketing? Or are they actually moving the women's movement forward in a meaningful way? Is it even fair to ask women to invest their money ethically, especially during the pandemic when women have been hit the hardest with accepting lower wages, taking cuts in hours, working overtime in some of these frontline jobs, um, burnout, uh, caretaking roles, having to return to the home and take care of children because daycares have closed, all of these different things that have disproportionately I think affected women more than um, more than anyone else and especially women of color especially immigrant women and women with other intersections of marginalization so these are the topics that we're going to be discussing in this podcast and hopefully by the end well I don't really have any answers to be honest but hopefully by the end you'll at least be able to consider whether or not your money is actually being invested in women and making the impact that you think that you're making with your money. So we're going to be talking about finances, uh, but we're not going to be using heavy jargon. In fact, I'm not a financial expert, even though my guests are. I'm somebody who's just coming to this uh, topic really within the last couple of years, and I'm still learning myself about financial literacy and uh, investment. So this episode should feel accessible to a wide range of listeners. As I think it's always important to say, we do not represent all voices or all experiences. We can only really speak on behalf of our own. So we do have limitations here. And hopefully, if you listen to this podcast, and you recognize our limitations, then you can simply reach out and let us know. For this episode, my two special guests are in the finance world. And they do work for large financial institutions but they are not disclosing the institutions and they are not promoting or speaking on behalf of any corporation. Then South is not sponsored by any corporation. Thanks to my willingness to be perpetually broke and your generous Patreon dollars that keep us going. I am not an expert in finances. Like I just said, so please consider what we say and then do your own research. So without further ado, let's get started. Today, we're going to be talking about financial feminism, and I have two special guests with me, Rosalind C. Spahn and Kat Williams. So let's just jump right in. Kat and Rosalind, maybe you can tell our guest about yourself going with you, Kat, first if you want to.
1: Hey, guys. This is Kat Williams. Uh, I've been working in the financial realm for about eight years now for a large U.S. bank in uh I work in risk management, and I have a background in commercial underwriting and financial analysis in the corporate and commercial banking world. There you go.
2: Hi all. My name is Roslyn. Um, I work for a unnamed Fortune 100 company uh, managing financial planning and retirement products, uh, general financial services industry. All right, cool.
0: I think also I'll just add that both of you are in our book club in the South Book Club community. And Kat, you've actually been with us from like the very start.
1: Founding member, baby.
0: Mm. Founding member. Yeah. And Rosalind, you just kind of got pulled in when we started talking about financial feminism. Really? That's
1: kind of how I met you.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. It was kind of perfect timing. You guys were talking about finance and I was there and we had the conversation and and never looked back. So I think to get started,
0: I asked you guys to come up with your own definition of financial feminism without looking at definitions online, without seeing what other people are necessarily saying about financial fem- feminism, so that we can kind of have a starting point of trying to to really define what this term means and and how it applies
2: in our everyday life.
0: So... Who would like to start?
2: I'll go first. So financial feminism, to me, you have to take into consideration the current context. Um, a Very, I think we can all agree, patriarchal, capitalistic society, right? So financial feminism is the reaction to that. You know, the women's empowerment movement. But financial feminism in particular being more of uh acknowledging the female and feminine assets as far as the the value that we can bring to business um and the education of women to know their power and to come into that and and to kind of demand uh the education and and a stronger role in managing personal finances or family issues it's often You know, women have a different perspective. We we consider the whole family. We we're very more much more holistic about you know our our priorities as far as finance goes. So I think we have an invaluable asset that that really needs to be tapped into and expressed. So that's to me what financial feminism is. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, that's a great definition. What about you, Kat? What do you think? I think financial feminism, at its heart, is really creating a more equal playing field financially for women uh, and men. But women have been at long-standing at a disadvantage uh, financially, and and not only just in their personal finances and bank balances, but the financial literacy and their knowledge and education. On what it means to, you know, manage your personal finances and just understanding, um, you know, the financial realm in general and and how that works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but basically, finding a way to empower yourself through money without the fear of it, mm. which I feel like there is a huge stigma around discussing money in general, but especially among women, it seems like it's an impolite topic to discuss. And in our silence, that's actually putting uh, us at a disadvantage. So for me, financial feminism is really about uh, self-advocacy, self-education, and Mm self-empowerment.
0: Those are all both good definitions. I think to add something maybe different, because I also agree that that's an element of financial feminism. But for me, feminism itself is so broad. And as somebody who's not in the finance world... Um, When I think about financial feminism, I do think about women's empowerment. I definitely think about women getting ahead in business and just in general. But I also think about what women can do through finances to change the world. Mm -hmm. And I'm not interested in getting into finances and businesses and doing the exact same thing that men have always done, especially as it pertains to... A lot of the things that we need to even be and exist in these spaces so there's a lot there's a lot that goes into that but like how can we actually change the world through our finances mm-hmm. so that's maybe something to add to that list of
1: things that financial feminism is right yeah yeah it's a very complex and nuanced topic and it can you'll find that it's like the mother tree, and it can branch off into mm-hmm. many, many different directions. And uh, you could really go down the rabbit hole with it because there's,
0: a lot. Yeah. there's a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, like, and even now with COVID, um, you know, we know that women have been affected more with unemployment and childcare and all that kind of stuff. So, I think that finances are really important even more now than they ever have been mm. with the pandemic. What do you think?
1: I absolutely agree. I feel like the pan- women were already at capacity before the pandemic in many ways in their personal lives and stretched to the limit financially as well. There's a lot of competing costs in our lives that you know, we need to take care of, especially if you're uh, you know, a working mom or you are a caregiver of some sort. You're you're not just looking after your own personal financial wellness. You know, you're you're often managing that of your family as well. And with the pandemic, I, you could really go into d- talking about different directions about it. You know, a lot of people have been infected by unemployment, losing their jobs, or having to take pay cuts because the business that they're working for can't afford to keep them at their regular full-time salary. And so having to accommodate and adjust you know your budget for that, not to mention the fact that inflation is growing at a rapid rate right now. So seven percent, yeah, seven and a half percent in one oh, month. I read gosh. in the New York Times yesterday. I think that's the highest rate of inflation since 1982, mm-hmm. uh, which is also an alarming fact. But but all those things combined, I mean, it's it's harder to make your dollar stretch at the the grocery store, but. Add to that the psychological impact of the pandemic, especially I'm just going to speak as a working mom. You know, I work from home. I have my toddler in the other room. I'm very blessed to have, uh, you know, a mom who can help watch my child because she's retired. But but even in that scenario, I often find myself having to switch hats Mm -hmm. (laughs) repeatedly throughout the day between I'm the working professional. Oh, I'm I'm toddler mom. You know what I mean? And and that psychological switch is hard thing to manage. And I'm often on WebEx calls with other women in my company who, you know, a toddler will burst into the room. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot draining on women um, psychologically and financially right now. And I know a lot of women have struggled with finding uh, affordable childcare,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially. With daycares closing left and right for a few days, if a child's been exposed in the classroom and all of a sudden, um, you know, I feel like the women have often had to take the burden, even if you do have a partner or a husband that is also working and helping take care of your child. I feel like a lot of the times the burden is really shifted onto the woman, whether it is self imposed or just expected. Uh, of like, you're going to accommodate your schedule to make this happen. And I worry that that's, you know, setting going to set back some women in their careers as Mm -hmm. they're continually asked to make these micro sacrifices day after day. And you can do that for a short period of time. But what's the long term impact on that, Mm -hmm. like psychologically, but also Mm -hmm. on your career? You know, you might be so busy and, and your boss understands that and you have your toddler at home or you have to help homeschool your kids because they're in virtual classrooms and you have to kind of keep them on track. Okay. So we aren't going to give her this project opportunity, but your male counterpart might not have, you know, his wife's taking care of his kids. So Mm -hmm. he can step up and, and they think there's a, there's a longer term impact that we won't really see uh, until we get further down the line. And, you know, we're about two years into this, right? Mm -hmm. So it's probably starting to show now, but there's also the huge aspect of burnout. Mm. Like, you do reach a limit and you can't do it anymore. You're like, I, I can't. So, what does that look like? And you set yourself back in your career. Mm-hmm. You're setting yourself back financially.
2: Yeah, yeah. If I can piggyback off of that, the, um, I feel like women tend to be the, the sacrificial default. You know, if, if something needs to happen, then we're going to be the ones to. Take care of the family, or, or change our lifestyle in order to, you know, adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think a, a good thing to think about is the careers or or the the jobs that have been affected by the pandemic. Um, a couple of them being teachers, educators. Of course, there's a lot of men in education, but a lot of teachers are women too. And and then healthcare. A lot of nurses are. Super affected and talk about burnout as far as that goes, um, and then on top of that, being able to manage the family. Oh, school closed for for a week, and they'll just do that randomly because you know it's a pandemic, okay? But adapting to those quick changes, like who's who's expected to make those sacrifices? And I was trying to think as you were talking, cat, like why why were this the the default of sa- for sacrifice? And, and changing our lifestyle, and part of it might be um, in pregnancy because, you know, obviously we have to carry the child, and then, okay, you're out of work for however the months in that pregnancy, so then you're going to be out of work taking care of the kid, and it's just logistically, I get it, but then that becomes the standard, right? Then that, that's our norm, and then and then how that affects culture because we're making those sacrifices and we're adapting, then We have less of an impact and instead of making the culture fit us, we just fit what we have to, you know what I mean? Um, So we're kind of minimizing ourselves and our impact, whereas if we really tapped into what advantages, what perspectives we have that could, you know, change the world, then instead of like minimizing our, our impact, that's kind of where my brain goes with it. But yeah, COVID has been a real struggle. Yeah, I think that what you're saying about changing for uh,
0: maybe another way of saying that is creating a space where women can exist with all of these other things that we're balancing, like family and allowing people to work from home so that they can do that. Mm-hmm. Those are things that we're starting to like see more of because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So that could be considered um, maybe a positive thing mm-hmm. for those that have been able to work at home. Um, another thing, though, is that women are typically taking lower paying jobs and a lot of these frontline jobs that everyone is commending everybody for stepping up and doing so well during the pandemic are also the lower paying jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something definitely to talk about, especially as we start talking about how women become financially more independent and what they do with their money to grow wealth. Mm -hmm. So do they actually even have a job that pays well enough? Mm -hmm. And so on a national level, we're starting to pay more attention do that. So, I mean, talking about the pandemic and how so much has changed in the last couple years is definitely important because, I mean, what are women doing with their money now? I read that women are actually putting more money in investment now because they realized that they had to have money saved to go through something like this. Mm -hmm. And for those that didn't, of course, it's like, oh, crap. Mm -hmm. Now I have to turn around and make sure that I have emergency money, money a certain amount of salary if you can even save that. I mean that's even if somebody yeah. can save and put money
1: aside. I actually got laid off last summer. I believe it was no summer before last. It was 2020. It was August 2020. The ironic thing I had just been promoted in July. And uh then come August I I got laid off. And and my company was very helpful in, in trying to find me another position internally and I had some resources available there, but that really shook me. It it scared me because I didn't, you know, I didn't have an emergency savings account. I had a 401k somewhere Mm -hmm. that I hadn't looked at in two years because I was busy with life. And I I think that's also the risk of being so busy uh, all the time. I'll do it later. I'll think about Mm -hmm. it later. Okay, tomorrow, next week, next month. That's my resolution, 2023, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you're always putting it off. But if you always... it off it's never going to happen and I feel like that is really (laughs) applicable for not only your financial personal budget but also investing Mm -hmm. because the the power of money and compound interest you will never make as much interest on your money if you don't start now versus if you started five years from now so the time is now and time is of the essence and you don't want to scare people with that but it's the truth. And if if you're avoiding it out of a place of anxiety and fear and 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 ignorance, like I just don't know where to start, I just don't know how. You're you're letting that that fear (laughs) fuel your procrastination, and that's ultimately hurting your income potential in Mm -hmm. the long run. And not only just income potential. We talk about income potential in this kind of you know nebulous term, but what does that mean? That that was like. Oh, I want to get out of this apartment. I want a home for my children one day. I want to quit spending money on rent, lining my landlord's pockets for his, you know, twenty plus multifamily buildings in this city. I want a piece of a piece of the land of my own. I want to be able to live the life I want and I've dreamed of. I want to, you know, send my kids to college or not even that, just summer camp, you know, mm-hmm. like I wanted to go to horse camp when I was a kid, but that was just not in the budget. Mm-hmm. But if you want your kid to go to horse camp, horse camp, you need to think about it now. Because those things, if, unless you have a very high income, a high paying job where you have the financial flexibility to just, you know, drop money on that, it's it's something you need to plan for. Without a plan, you kind of don't have a map mm-hmm. for where you want to go and how you're going to get there. Yeah. And for the average person, you need that
2: plan. Yeah. And then I think about, like, women, okay, going in and out of, hey, we had a kid, so we got to do that. And then going back to work after that, that time gap that you're not contributing to a 401K, not earning income, is is really affecting the woman. You know, and I've, I can't tell you how many cases I've seen that, you know, a couple gets divorced and she has nothing because she was prioritizing the family and and supporting him to earn for the family. But when the circumstances change... Not only is she left without resources, but now she doesn't have the education or the confidence to tackle that new position that she's found herself in. So, yeah, talk about a tricky balance. And then I was also thinking about how, what are the things that women have to purchase that men don't? Feminine products. Like, you know, we have tax. <laughs> we have. exactly We have so many more expenses. And and how culturally acceptable is it for a guy to wear the same T-shirt for weeks. But for a woman, oh my gosh, she wore that outfit like I saw her wear that last week. Like how how taboo is that? So we have all these like
1: we don't have the luxury of the Steve Jobs turtleneck. Yeah, Dang it. exactly.
2: <laughs> and then and we have to do the makeup and all these things to keep up with culture. So for women, we really have to consciously like go against the status quo. And be like, screw that! Mm-hmm. I'm I'm doing it my way, regardless of what other people think and what the culture thinks.
1: And whether you be- you want to believe it or not, your appearance really is impactful, especially working, you know, with the public or mm-hmm. in a corporate environment or in an office environment. Women are constantly being judged by our appearance, and mm-hmm. that's not fair because the standard is much more rigid for women than it is for men in general. I'd say. I mean, I think that there is an expected standard of grooming for everyone, but how much more time does it take to reach that standard, mm-hmm. you know, just the base level for women um, that can impact, you know, how people in your office even perceive you and mm-hmm. your professionality. And and that's just a very real thing. Like, you know, we'd l- I'd love to be my braless, free, carefree self, wild woman, no makeup no, whatever, but <laughs> that's just not the reality of working in corporate America. Or even if you just work at your local real estate office as the front desk receptionist, like it matters. Your mm-hmm. appearance matters, unfortunately, and it just goes to show that there's an impl- there are implicit biases against women, mm-hmm. uh, especially in working environments that are that can hold us back without us even realizing it. Mm-hmm.
0: So I wanted to talk a little bit more about impact investment, which one component of impact investment is investing in women and look more critically at some of these investment companies that are marketing towards women or um, even companies that are trying to help women become more financially literate. Uh, I really wanted to go down some of these rabbit holes with you guys today and Really ask the question of whether or not these companies are actually able to deliver or are they just using women uh as a part of their marketing? Are they like capitalizing on this movement of women's empowerment, this kind of girl boss movement? I mean, that's mm-hmm. its own company, but you <laughs> mm-hmm. know what I'm saying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Like
2: we're not cater- to mention
1: MLMs. Yes. What's an MLM? I don't know. Multi-level marketing.
2: So like Mary Kay,
1: those where they're trying to wear. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're basically elaborate pyramid schemes that target women who are looking for an alternative source of income, especially mothers or working who have to. Oh, that's a whole nother. Yeah, I wasn't thinking
0: about that, but yeah, mm -hmm. that's a whole nother thing too.
1: I think there's a lot of of gimmicks out there and a lot of snake oil salesmen, especially on social media, Instagram, TikTok. There's a lot of people who can really capture your attention in these short form content and then they'll sell you a dream. Mm-hmm. Oh, now you just need to purchase my 12 uh, step guide PDF. And yeah, mm-hmm. maybe 15, 20 bucks doesn't seem like a lot, but over 10,000 people that they scam into buying them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not saying everybody out there is a scam, but you really have to be judicious in who you follow and what are they really selling you? Mm-hmm. And nothing is free, even in social media. They're even if they're telling you it's free, they're, you know, they're making ad dollars off of you. They're they're fun, they're funneling you to um, you know, their corporate partners and, and things of that nature. So you do have to be judicious, but how do you be judicious about that when you don't know what you don't know?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that that can be a slippery slope. So finding ethical resources to point people to, I think is critical.
2: I think we talked a little bit about like, cause that's a great point. Where do you get your information, especially mm-hmm. financial, which is so critical. Um, and there's so many people talking at you from social media and this and that. And for example, not to hate on him, but Dave Ramsey, you know, he has no uh, certifications after his name. He's a talk show host, but he's become a credible source Um, so quote unquote, exactly quote unquote (laughs) credible. Yeah. So I think, you know, we touched on this a little bit, just talking outside of this podcast, but finding a mentor, finding someone who you can genuinely trust. Um, one of the, the top agent in, in my industry, he once told me if, if people can trust you with their heart, they can trust you with their money. So a lot of the time it's finding someone who you can genuinely trust with your heart and your money. Or be a do-it-yourselfer and go down those rabbit holes and truly question the marketing schemes. The the what what is this person promising? What is this dream that I'm being sold? And does it actually line up with with what I'm? Yeah, that's what for.
0: I want to kind of like really get into a little bit more. Like, what is being promised? Mm-hmm. What are some of the talking points? Right in general, feminism is a broad spectrum. But I think probably one thing that almost everybody can agree on is that they want equality for women in the workplace and equality in terms of Mm -hmm. ending that gender wage gap. And so, you know, you see then a lot of that being promised through these companies. But then when you start peeling back the curtain, is that really something that they can promise? Mm -hmm. Is that really something that they're actually trying to do?
1: Is it even deliverable?
0: Is it deliverable? Mm. So, like when you're talking about investing, for example, like Rosalind, I know when I started to think about investment, and I came to you, and we started having these conversations. Like, I wanted to put my money towards women. Like, we talked about this. I was like, how can I invest in women, right? Yeah. And it seems like if you do a Google search, you can find companies. I mean, for example, Elevest, their CEO Sally Krawcheck is really vocal about well she started the company to help women just as we're talking about become more financially independent become more financially aware and so you can buy into that membership for as little as a dollar a month Mm. and she talks about that like why it's important to be able to make investing accessible to people who have don't have a huge budget for investing so as little as a dollar a month you can gain access to this membership and these investment plans however she doesn't make the promise that when you're investing, you're actually investing in women. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I then, of course, started to think, well, then how can I invest in women? And is that even something that's
2: possible? Okay. As far as like the like what actual products in the stock market that you can invest in, um, they're fairly like new. You know, these haven't been around. This is kind of a new thing that people are interested in. And uh, I know my company just kind of came out with Uh, their sustainable products, whether it be environmental, sustainable, um, equality, diversity, all these things that they focus on. And they literally just came out last year. But it's super encouraging because so many people were looking for this. And they were like, finally, something to put my money towards that's, you know, that's not only responsible as far as I want my money to grow, but that's responsible for like, what is this company doing to our world and to our culture and to women, Um, so those are those are fairly new Um, but it's encouraging because it's i mean they've had like great great responses for for investors who who want that
0: yeah and so i mean i do think it's encouraging but i think also it could be a place where people still don't really know if they don't look what they're investing in no doubt and any company can slap a label on it saying that they're investing in women but for example i was looking at some of the companies on this one particular mutual fund that was supposed to be for investing in women, and I see companies like Apple, Microsoft, it's just some of the top companies that are on any investment. It's like, yeah, uh, what do they portfolio. mean by investing? So in what women, do then? they? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then I started thinking, okay, well, are these companies for women? Like, what is the criteria yeah. they mm-hmm. they're using to claim that this is an investment in women? Which then sent me down the rabbit hole of looking at... um, The data behind it. Yeah, the data behind it. Like, for example, Morningstar's Women's Empowerment Index. I saw when I was looking at some of their criteria, one of them is the gender wage gap. But when you look at their breakdown of the criteria that they have to meet in order to say that they are investing in women there's a NA next to gender wage gap. And so then I started looking for how they actually gather their data, which is from a company called Equilap. Equilap is a company out of the Netherlands, uh, and it has put out the 2021 global report that tracks the status of gender quality in the top 100 companies in the S&P 500. And so they do have all this criteria that they use, And you see these really alarming stats. And one of those stats is that only 9% of companies are actually publishing the information on the difference between their salaries, between men and women. So the data isn't even being collected there. Mm -hmm. So to summarize that, if you're thinking you're going to buy a stock or a mutual fund that is investing in that particular component of what you think would help women, which is equalizing the gender pay gap, then you aren't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. unless you look that information up, you will never know that because the company might be selling you that promise, right? Yeah. In some other kind of language, you might be thinking. And you're just
1: trusting that yeah. they're good for it. But it sounds like once you peel back the onion and you you kind of dive deep down into the actual data that's verifying that it's missing or it's it's limited. We talked about this earlier. You're only as good as the data that you have. And you're going to be limited by a ceiling of what that data can provide you if you don't actually have access to those metrics. And if these companies are not being open to sharing that information, you only have a nine percent sample set. What does that mean? At the end of the day, what does that really mean? Also, how how do these companies? I'd be interested to find out how are these companies even measuring that in, on an internal basis? How are they measuring that gap?
0: Well, that's actually, I can tell you some of the things that I found. And let me just say, I'm not an expert. I'm just your average person. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a regular person. I have no financial background whatsoever. But I was doing some research to prepare for this podcast. And I came across, you know, like I said, that Equilap. Well, I found that, like, Elevest used its own. And I don't know where they're getting their data from. But other companies use Equilap. And so Equilab put out that report and like just to go over a couple of the um, percentages that came off of that report, 6% of companies, and this is in the S&P 500, so this is tracking 500 companies, right? 6% of companies have a female CEO, 13% of companies have a female CFO, Mm -hmm. and 9% have gender balance at the board level so it's still pretty alarmingly yeah. low
1: this topic has really come up a lot um you know in the financial services industry in general and women are pretty good at getting positions in leadership up to a certain point mm-hmm. there are a lot of female managers in companies and companies and team leads but you'll start to realize when you start looking at the digging diving deeper into the data the higher you get there is a ceiling yeah. and That is why the representation for women in leadership roles in a company is pretty, it's it's much more balanced at the lower levels of management. But the higher you climb, the smaller and smaller the percentage gets. And one of the things that we've talked about a lot with these uh, diversity and equity initiatives, uh, or DEI, is that it's not enough to make a seat at the table, but also to have a voice. So even the women that have climbed to the the echelons of corporate America, um, you know, what is the impact? Are they, what is the impact that they're really serving, being able to serve at their companies? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that they don't have an impact or not, I'm that. but that is something to consider as you get higher into these levels of leadership roles is like, okay, well, yeah, we can spit out some stats about our diversity and inclusion, whatever that be the case for, in this instance, women. But what is their actual impact? Are they, you know, a token head for us to say that, look at us, is it a marketing tactic? We've got a woman on our board. Or are they actually, you know, driving executive decisions at at that high level?
2: Statistically, and and from the limited data that they have, they've proven that, if, if a board of a company is more diverse, that company is going to act better. It's going to actually run, it's going to be more profitable. It's going to, so there's proof for, yes, we're capable of it. So then why is, why is it not happening? And that's really the problem. And it might be that cultural concept of, you know, women don't make decisions in the family. So, or not as many. And so why would they make decisions for thousands of families? And um, it, it, I think it's truly just culture, like maybe women not stepping up or not being recognized. Um.
1: I think it's the patriarchal mm-hmm. uh, pressures of our culture yeah. that is creating these kind of socialized roles and expectations for for how we are supposed to interact as women in society at large. But if we drill down deeper, how we interact in our professional environments how we lead and manage people and are you more of a transactional leader which is a typically more traditional masculine sort of leadership where you can climb the ladder a little bit more effectively because you're not as concerned about the people impact I would almost say versus a transformational style of it which is more of like an inclusive leadership style having everyone's voice be heard And represented. And I mean, getting back to what you're originally saying, talking about finding companies that are investing in businesses that have an ethical resonance with you, whether that be a female owned business or something that's environmentally conscious, whatever, whatever it is you know, finding the humanity mm-hmm. in in the investment process and not just looking at the dollar bill signs above your own head for your personal advance. Mm-hmm. So
0: that's, yeah, that's one of the questions that I really think is um, one that I really want to keep looking at. When we say we're investing in women, are we actually investing in women? And how do we know we're investing in women? And I think that We don't even really know what that means to invest in women. Yeah, what does that mean? So I can tell you what it means to the company that's collecting the data in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. To them, it means how many uh, employees are offering two-week primary care leave, Mm -hmm. right? Less than 50% of employees offer two-week paid primary care leave in companies in the S&P 500. That's a
1: pretty low standard to begin with. 18%
0: offer flexible work hours and location, 18% 18 percent offer flexible work hours and location so when you're talking about the pandemic
1: is this pre-pandemic stats or is this... this was I
0: don't know when they were collecting the data yeah but I think the data was being collected for a one year period if i remember reading it correctly don't quote me on that and maybe things I'm sure that that has changed because flexibility is like i said earlier now that the pandemic and it's like across the board everybody including men, need those flexible hours Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we're paying attention to it. The (laughs)
1: ironic thing is, is that for years we've we've been told over and over again, oh, no, you've got to be in the office nine to five, you know, if you're in a traditional office environment. And in fact, I've had many managers who've said this, but we are finding out that that was never true, Mm -hmm. that with the advancement of technology, that that is a very archaic, outdated mindset for how We are expected, not expected, demanded to work, whether that is the most efficient and effective use of our time or not. But being seen in your desk, sitting at your chair is more important than your your actual productivity. Yeah, exactly. And we've seen since we've been forced in this past year, it's not, I think at the individual level, we all know what we are. If you have the ability to work remotely, that is a big caveat. We know that that is a luxury. For many of us, because some people lost their jobs in the pandemic who have to be physically in person or, you know, nursing hospital staff. Some jobs you can't work remotely, obviously. So take that as a caveat here. But we found time and time again that we actually are more productive. We work longer when you're given that flexibility. And that acknowledgement of you as a human being and not just a productivity worker. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And flexibility doesn't necessarily mean that you get to work from home. It might mean that you take an hour to breastfeed your child if mm-hmm. you're a nursing mother. Yeah. It might mean that you have to spend an hour or so a few times during the week to take your kids to appointments. Or pick or up your, your kids from school. Self, and pick take, up your yeah. kids from school. Exactly. Those are the things that I think could be more flexible and like i said you know now that men are on board here and this is affecting them across the board then we're starting to see people paying more attention to flexibility so that's one thing um gender non-discrimination policies and sexual harassment policies are also something that's being tracked and although they have 99 percent of companies have policies on gender non-discrimination only 69 have anti-sexual harassment policy in place
1: Hmm. Also you have to think about the retribution aspect if you do report something yes. to HR. Mm-hmm. And if you are if you are working in a very large corporate company that has an HR department that's located in, you know, New York City and you live in Daphne, Alabama, maybe that has more impact that they're actually going to follow through with their policies and that you're not going to they are not going to be allowed to kind of dole out retribution against you for reporting them. But you'll see in smaller and smaller companies that that is not the case. Right, because they don't have a
0: department. They, yeah, don't, they have don't have a department. Any Joey over there knows mm-hmm. Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> and what if happens when the department is full of men, yeah. given the fact that most sexual harassment cases happen? I don't have a statistic, but we can probably all agree that most sexual
1: harassment cases happen to women. It doesn't have to be overt. And it can be subtle and it can still create a very uncomfortable environment for the women in the office or, you know, at X, Y, Z job. It doesn't have to be, I actually looked up your skirt. It can be making subtle comments and kind of making it, oh, it's just a joke Mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. And then you're making women feel unsafe, but they're like, they're almost gaslighting themselves into being like. Well, maybe it's not really worth reporting. I mean, he makes those kind of jokes all the time. he does it to everybody, but that's not okay. And that that kind of per- behavior I'm finding in 2022 is still very much pervasive versus the overt sexual harassment it still happens. But I think that you find that more still commonly fairly acceptable when you get out into these smaller office environments or smaller, um, you know, individual franchise, Locations or or whatever it may be, maybe that doesn't fly at corporate. But the farther you get away from headquarters, I feel like it, the standards loosen. But creating that kind of unsafe environment, you know, even though in the subtle ways is very draining.
2: Is it possible for us to even know though that the companies that we put our money towards, how they you know handle that? That's that's the issue. If it's like we want to invest in women, we want to we want to be equal, but you're dependent
1: on the data yeah, that they're exactly. independently providing. Exactly. Right.
2: Exactly. You are. And I,
0: all of this data that's being collected that I'm reading off to you from Equal App, all of this data is only collecting data on women. That's it. So when we talk about what you were saying with the DEIs, can you also say what the DEI
1: stands for? DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's been a hot topic in the financial services industry, but also kind of industry industries wide um, in the past couple of years, which is very encouraging. But you can have a DEI initiative. You can say all you want, but what does it look like in action? You almost wonder, is there a third party auditor that can come in and kind of assess these things independently? Because you can say that you're doing the right things all you want, and if it's self-reported, who can tell you that yeah. you're doing differently, unless some social movement arises from the TikTok mm-hmm. <laughs> groundworks, you know? But I would be very cognizant and hesitant to rely strictly on things that are relying on public perception, mm-hmm. exactly. which is marketing yeah. so and advertising. But that's the exact you're selling thing. me the dream. Mm-hmm. But are you living it?
0: Yeah, Yeah. but that's the exact point I'm trying to make with some of these companies that are marketing themselves as investors for women. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because are they selling you the same thing? Is it just a storefront? When you start to dig down into it, what are you actually spending your money
2: on? I think a really easy and public um, way to see that is who's on the board. If Mm -hmm. there's not a woman on the board, then you can... Or if there's only one. Or if there's only one, just as the token female, then you can almost guarantee that they're not living what they're marketing. And that's and you should be able to see who's on a board of any of the, especially those larger companies. That's a that's a really easy. Yeah. Do they
1: reflect the community? Does their board reflect the communities that they're saying that they're representing? Exactly. Because if you don't, even you can have the best intentions in the world. But as a white woman, a middle class white woman, I am limited to my perspective in views. I can educate myself to a point, but I cannot speak for somebody else and somebody else's interests. I cannot speak for a woman of color and the things that are her top concerns and things that she wants to see and things that are important to her in representation, just like, you know, a board of 12 white men or eight white men, one black man and Mm -hmm. one Asian woman can, that, that they're limited if Uh, Your intentions can only say so much if you're not actually following through and showing that you mean it, and Mm -hmm. that means inclusion and equity at the very top, exactly.
0: Yeah, and so that's why I think, like, when we talk about financial feminism, it's important to talk about intersectional feminism like, Mm -hmm. what does intersectional financial feminism look like? Because I feel like it's not enough to just stick a woman on the board, we know white women women they can be complicit they can create policies that are harmful as we see in Alabama with our own governor who is, has horrendous policies on women's reproductive rights mm. you know we know that just sticking a woman on the board isn't enough
2: yeah and and that's that's a good point like the board is one thing but CEOs and CFOs that like who's actually making these decisions mm-hmm. if you see a woman CFO then you know that that company is probably taking into consideration a lot more women's aspects than than not. But a board, like you said, you could could fluff up a board by having one token female and she doesn't really, you have eight other guys outweighing her vote. So does it actually make any consequence?
0: Um, Or is she actually even pro-feminine?
2: Right.
1: Yeah, you know, that's what I was thinking. It's like, especially with older generations where you kind of had to play by the rules that were set. Mm. and you are you were fighting an uphill battle to even get to a position of leadership to be taken seriously, that you have to play it by the rules, by the man's game. And if you've been playing that for 30 years, by the time you get to that top position, have you been lifting women up along with you along the way? Mm. Or were you just fighting tooth and nail to get yourself up there and you're still playing by the rules of their game? Through
2: that, yeah.
1: I, I feel like that could be very common, uh, mm. Yeah. And that that would be a concern of mine, because are you mentoring other women in your field? Mm. Are you speaking at events like a woman in risk summit? You know, are you are you an advocate? For bringing other women up with you. And I mean, to an extent, that's an unfair burden, because you're not expecting men to do the same. Mm. But at the same time, It's not fair, but you need to lift up your compatriots with you. Or who is your feminism for? Is it for you? Is it for you to have a piece of the pie? Or is it to make the table bigger?
0: Yeah. Mm. That's also coming back to that conundrum that women in, in financial feminism finds itself in. Are we just going to make money? Is that what it's all about? Just giving women more money? Or are we going to do something with our money to make change? Mm-hmm. Is that what it's about? Giving women money so that they can do something? Is that even fair to ask women to do, you know, to spend their money? And think of in all that the way? time
1: that you've taken. Look at you. You've taken all this time and energy to research these stats, and you still don't have a clear answer. You still don't really know what the resolution is here. And you've just gone further down the rabbit hole and you found that the data is lacking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, how do you you even make these decisions? So then you're putting on the burden of research and, and women in general who, a lot of people in general, but women especially who already are stretched to the max with their schedules and time. How do you have the time, if you're making this a priority to sort all of this out yourself when it's already hard enough just to invest any money mm-hmm. at all at any level and yeah. understand what you're doing yeah which i all, don't even let understand alone that. to yeah. think of the ethical implications of it i almost feel like the practical advice is you just need to start and you need yeah. to start somewhere but you are not going to be an expert in a day in any capacity in any field and you're not going to be an expert investor in a day so start where you can with the knowledge you have. Exactly. And then build from there.
2: That was yeah, yeah that was my solution to this. Cause you know, we we're spinning our wheels about, well, how do we actually know what these and you don't. You just you can't know for certain sometimes. But what's within your control is where is your money going? And and as women, you know, just personally, can we make can we better our, our own lives? And then, you know, as we grow our resources and we have more ability to make those decisions, then we can optimize it from there. But in my opinion, from from my industry, like first step, just take care of yourself. Look out for, you know, your own family, your own finances, and then try to optimize. And then you can figure out, okay, where can I put the money to also better myself, but also, you know, be responsible about where that's being invested. But primarily, you know, in order to be able to make those decisions, we have to have the resources and we have to like let that grow and investing. You have to
1: develop that power Mm -hmm. of discernment and that knowledge with time. Mm -hmm. You have to be patient with yourself and have grace with yourself. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to invest in the wrong thing. You're going to, you know, mess up your budget. Mm -hmm. And I just think (laughs) don't throw the baby out with the bathwater with some of this stuff. If you make a mistake, you start, you just Start with the next decision. Exactly. Um, If you lose money, you don't just throw everything out. Or if you bust your budget and you're like, I'm hopeless, I'm never going to get this. I'm never going to figure this out. And you put it off for another year, two years. That's money that's going nowhere. Exactly. It's it's falling down the drain. And you're not even impacting your own life positively, Mm -hmm. let alone these women you want to invest in. Exactly. Yeah,
2: 100%.
0: I think that's perfect advice. I think that's kind of what I have done. I just started with a little bit of money I've had. Like, I just literally started with, I think, $50 putting it in a Roth IRA. Mm-hmm. And then I slowly, incrementally started to increase it. And I'm still not maxing it out because I can't afford to right now as an adjunct instructor getting paid so little. Mm-hmm. But I still think that we can we can be conscious of this. Like mm-hmm. I think the more people that talk about and demand more from these companies... And that's going to hopefully change the industry.
1: And, you know, as these conversations become hotter and hotter topics and DEI becomes more important at this major corporate level, hopefully these conversations are going to start raising with the cultural demand, like this is what we want, this is what we need. And someone can come in, hopefully several someones, and find a better way to measure this data, collect the metrics that need to be collected. Mm -hmm. And how to put that to use in a meaningful way. Because we can talk all day about inclusion and equity and financial feminism. But, you know, it can be an esoteric philosophical ponderings if you don't actually have action behind it to support that. But on an individual level, you are limited to what you can do unless this is your passion and that's your niche and you're going to fill it. You know, you are limited to the resources that are currently existing, think that's the only advice that we can give for now is you got to start somewhere and then keep your mind open and, and keep looking keep searching but don't let that stop you from starting
2: and even if you like invent we got into the weeds about investing which is a great topic but you know before investing comes spending like where are your daily spending habits going you vote for those companies with your dollar you know, small businesses, women owned businesses, local companies like and arguably we spend more money than we invest money. So pay attention, be conscious of of where you spend that.
0: Yeah. I mean, consumer responsibility is huge. Mm-hmm. Investor responsibility then might be the next step for mm-hmm. those that can take it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think we've covered a lot of grounds here today. Um, what's our takeaway here?
2: How essential the conversation is, you know, and and we don't know, none of us know, but by trading information, by bouncing, by hearing ourselves talk to one another, that's the start of the solution, I believe. Education, you know.
1: My takeaway is that this is both an individual journey, Mm -hmm. because obviously your money is very intimate, personal thing, but also a collective journey and having these discussions and and bringing these topics to the light of day, even in just three people talking in a room like now, I don't know if everyone has even considered the terminology of financial feminism. What does that mean? What is that? Mm -hmm. You know, when you first approached me with this topic, I was like, I've never really thought about that. And I'm a woman who works in finance. (laughs) So just talking about it, having these discussions, Mm -hmm. I think is integral but also you've brought up so many different facets of this that i didn't even consider about like how to invest our money in ethical ways like i was like oh well i just thought about investing my money that i needed to start doing that
0: mm-hmm.
1: not that i should do it ethically wait what is what is the implications there like mm-hmm. you can have a lot of conversations about this we've already touched on so many topics it's very complex and i think for each individual person we're going to have the th- you know our individual passions and what's kind of drawing us to these conversations and and what's going to be brought up topically brought up, but um, let's just keep talking about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and and destigmatizing it too. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people feel like they can't access it or they're afraid or oh shit now I've got to think about ethical investing another thing to throw on my. Mm-hmm. You know, already. my emotional burden <laughs> list. Yeah. Because a lot does fall under the umbrella of feminism. Like, we are expected as women to solve the world's problems through yeah. feminism. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a heavy burden. It's a heavy burden that I know a lot of people. Let's just do what we
1: can with what we got yeah.
0: today.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But I, I think it, it, financial literacy mm-hmm. is absolutely essential. Let's just yeah. start there. Yeah, exactly. Financial
0: literacy. Yeah, good point. Well, thank you, Rosalyn and Kat, for joining me. I thought this was a great conversation.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for having us. I've really appreciated uh, getting to converse with y'all. And you guys have brought up a lot of interesting points that I hadn't considered. So it's it's been nice to talk about. <laughs>
0: Well, FEM South is a podcast and book club community produced in the Deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, we are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism. Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment, and we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with FEM South, you can go to our website at femsouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books online. You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash FemSouth, where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to Fem South.